The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 83 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pagler, and the CISO of Siena, Andy Benello, both whom will be joining me in just a few minutes. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not on my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or resort to my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So awesome show last week with Ariel Evans. Wasn't she just great? That was a great show. I really enjoyed it. I mean, talk about someone who knows their business right off the cuff, right? I mean, we, we, we sometimes, you know, in this industry, we say the word expert a lot and, you know, maybe we use it too much. People, people aren't experts in some of these issues that we're talking about in the cybersecurity. Being a cybersecurity expert is a very, very difficult designation to defend. But in, in terms of cyber risk, she's a cyber risk expert. There's no doubt about it, right? I mean, she knows, she definitely knows her business. Ariel is the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies and author of the new book, Managing Cyber Risk. And she appeared on last week's show to talk about a whole bunch of things uh, related to measuring cyber risk on your digital assets. And we had a very insightful conversation about how companies can first identify your digital assets. I mean, it sounds like a simple question, but if I asked a lot of people, I don't know if they can really articulate right, right off the cuff, like how you would do that. Right, and then what types of cyber risk maturity models companies should be embracing, and how you could calculate the financial exposure and regulatory risk of a specific di digital asset. So all this is is great stuff. This is all stuff that cybersecurity professionals need to know, in my opinion. No matter what vertical you're in in cybersecurity, so no matter what you do in the cybersecurity space, I think this was a very beneficial conversation to to on and information to understand. Right, so Evans also define for us what cyber resiliency means and why you should use a digital asset approach to cyber resiliency and how a company become, can become more cyber resilient by implementing a proper risk prioritization strategy. And then we wrapped up the episode by talking about what professionals should be thinking about when measuring the efficacy of a cybersecurity program and how you should calculate these metrics and how to use them properly with key stakeholders, which is really, really interesting conversation. I think there's always a variety of different opinions about that specifically, and even how you use metrics with the board. So I think, you know, it was just uh, very useful to understand. I think, you know, when, when there's always a difference of opinions around the industry, around the topic that we talk about, it just makes it that much more interesting, right? So people, you know, create a lot of buzz on it, and people start talking about it on social media. It's just awesome. So if you missed last week's show, Check it out when you get a chance on your favorite playback medium. That's the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies and the author of the new book, Managing Cyber Risk, Ariel Evans, on last week's episode. That's episode number 82 of Task Force 7 Radio. So I want to give another shout out to the April 2019 Encore episode of TF7 Radio uh, with one of the sought-after cybersecurity executive recruiters in the world, Mr. Matt Comins of Caldwell Partners. Folks. Let me tell you, Matt is the real deal, okay? Episode number 51 with Matt Comins 
is the most listened to episode in TF7 radio history. That's right. 83 episodes to date, and episode number 51 is so far top of the charts. It's the front runner. Even though we did the show months ago, right, as, you know, episode number 51, we had thousands of people listen to the episode just last week. <laughs> it's amazing. And I, you know, I received numerous calls from people about the show, uh, some telling me it completely changed the way they look at things and how they are, are managing their career. They made them think about, you know, what they're doing and the decisions that they're making. This is real-world value we're talking about here, folks. It's information that can make a difference in your thought process and change the way you view the world and how you look at opportunities, your own opportunities, right, and how you value yourself in the marketplace. It allows you the self-reflection I think that you need and is valuable in determining what you're going to do and the decisions you're going to make and how you're going to move forward. And I think that's what TF7 really is all about. I'm really proud of this show, uh, folks. I'm really, really proud of it. So if you missed it, it's never too late to catch it. That's the beauty of internet radio. It's easy to find. You can find it uh, in order, obviously, at episode number 51 in the TF7 library or right after episode number 81 as the encore episode in the TF7 library. It's right there. So that's Matt Comins of Caldwell Partners on the April 2019 encore episode of TF7 Radio. Check it out, episode number 51. So if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America or maybe someone just sent you this link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. So you just go to the new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com. That's www.tf7radio.com. And hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a really very impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. I just mentioned a, few, a couple of them to you in, in a couple different episodes. You can also get the latest cybersecurity news and, and news on Task Force 7 Radio. And you can even write comments on some of the different news articles and topics that we're talking about, which is a lot of fun. And show notes are coming, I promise. I'm going to get around to it. Show notes are coming. But since we're on 11 different playback mediums, and people usually have preferences on which one they like, we try to make it easy for you to find all the playback mediums that Task Force 7 is on. Just hit the subscribe button at the top of the right of the homepage, and it'll take you right there. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio website, which is really, really cool. Uh, it's uh, the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. You get all the TF7 Radio updates right from the site, and as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 Extras and the Encore episodes I just talked about and a whole bunch of other stuff, news and events, and also the TF7 Network, too. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. We got a great show for you this evening, something that folks have been asking me to do for a while now, and that is to do a whole episode on blockchain, right? And so... I put, I put one together for you, and I'm pretty excited about this one. I think it's going to be uh, very well received. Now, this show isn't for the faint of heart, right? We're going to get do some deep diving here. This is something we normally don't do, and it, that's to geek out a little bit. We're going to geek out a little bit, okay? We're going to get, some, we're going to get technical, uh, we're going to, you know, which is fine, right? Which is fine. Obviously, cybersecurity is a technical discipline, right? But we don't really go this deep too often, but I think it's really necessary for us to do that so we can have a real constructive conversation around the security, around blockchain and the cybersecurity challenges and issues associated with this specific technology. So to do this and to take us through this very exciting topic, I think we're going to have Professor David Schweb on the show with us this evening to break it down bit by bit, if, 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 if you know what I mean. So David is the founding director of the Cybersecurity Master's Program at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University. He also recently served as the Chief Information Security Officer for Galaxy Digital, a diversified merchant bank dedicated to the digital assets and blockchain technology industry. He has more than 21 years of information technology, information security, and risk management experience. He's worked in the financial services sector at a senior level for Bank New York Mellon, Merrill Lynch, Solomon Smith Barney, and Citigroup. He has also served as an expert witness in a criminal case in the field of computer forensics. And David is a certified information systems auditor and certified information systems security professional, and also the recipient 
of the Smart CEO Executive Management Award. And finally, Dave's a member of the New York Bar and graduated magna cum laude from uh, Hofstra University uh, School of Law, where he was also an associate editor of the Hofstra Law Review. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor David Schwed. David, welcome to hey. Task Force 7 Radio. How you doing? Good, good. I'm glad you're here. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to kind of, you know, I kind of warn my audience a little bit. We're going to be uh, geeking out a little bit today. So we're going to get a little bit technical. This is going to be a lot of fun, though, and I want to jump right into it. But what are the main attack vectors and tactics that are being used to compromise blockchain-based assets? I'm interested in, in your opinion on this. Yeah, sure. So, you know, in, in my opinion, I think the biggest threat that I see is really still on the client side. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, you have the, the, the public key and the private key that, that's securing, you know, this digital asset. And, you know, there are different ways to protect those private keys and we can get into those, you know, whether it's, you know, using a cold wallet, hot wallets, paper wallets. But that private key is what's used to sign the transaction, which is then transmitted to the blockchain, which is really what effectuates the transfer of those assets. And that private key is really what needs to be protected. And, you know, there are different methods to protect those and we can get into those, you know, in, in, uh, you know later. Um, but what I see is I see you know, lacks client-side security, which, you know, either a man in the middle or, you know, whether there's a Java, you know, JavaScript vulnerability, I could see ways of, um, or, you know, doing, um, you know, some sort of, um, you know, address manipulation where the client thinks that they're sending, uh, you know, a transaction to a particular uh, Bitcoin or, you know, Ethereum or whatever, you know, asset you're using address. And, you know, via, you know, some malware or via some other, um, you know, vulnerability that it's going to change that address. So I think that there still needs to be a lot of work done on the client side, um, you know, whether it's protecting those private keys or whether it's ensuring that the information that, um, you know, is being entered into the transaction is legitimate. So when we think about some of the methods to achieve secure cold transactions versus hot transactions, what, what does the discussion entail? Like, what are your thoughts? So, you know, for, for me, you know, it really comes down to a matter of, you know, how, you know, if, if time isn't of the essence for a transaction, you know, a, a cold wallet or a cold transaction is really the best, you know, and the way that works is, um, you know, very simply, you know, again, you know, moving aside enterprise level solutions, um, you know, it, at, at its core, what you're doing is you're having a machine that's connected to the internet and you'll go and you will uh, initiate a transaction. So I'll say David Schwed is going to send George, uh, you know, 100 Bitcoin. And I'll create this transaction. Now, this transaction is not transmitted to the blockchain yet because it needs to be signed uh, by my key, which, again, is stored in a wallet. So I'll take that transaction. I'll remove it off that machine that's connected to the Internet and, you know, in theory could be compromised. And I can bring it over to an air gap machine, you know, a machine that's not connected to the Internet, that's never been connected to the Internet. And then I can go and I can go on that machine and then I can sign that transaction with my private keys. That transaction that's now signed, I remove it from the air gap computer bring it back over to the computer that's connected to the internet, and then I transmit that, uh, that transaction. So, you know, outside, you know, physical compromise for that air gap computer, you know, and assuming that, you know, you go through this, you know, ritual when you get this new computer to, you know, ensure that it's, you know, never connected to the internet and that, um, you know, firmware for whatever wallet you're using or software wallet you're using, you know, again, assuming for the sake of this conversation that all of that has been ritualized and it's been legitimate, there's, there's, there's a, you know, not, not a great opportunity for compromise in that sense because that machine's not connected to the internet. Um, but that's not always the case where, you know, you have time is of the essence and, you know, you need to make a transaction, especially when we start getting into conversations around institutional trading. So that's where you have to get into, you know, different types of hot transactions. And that's where the security, uh, you know, really comes into play because, you know, you get, you're talking about machines that are connected to the internet. So, you know, for me, if I'm making a transaction, I always default to cold just because I can ensure that, you know, my private keys are never exposed to, you know, an, an internet accessible uh, PC. Hey, David, this is Tom. Um, you know, awesome having you on the show. Uh, you know, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, cold wallets are, are definitely where you want secure stuff. But and I, I agree, like hot wallets. But don't you think some of it is just having policy in place, like a combination of the two? So maybe, you know, uh, it, what I'd call almost like a warm wallet. So you've got the cold wallet where you're storing a majority of your funds uh, that you don't need to use. And then maybe you have some of those, you know, quote unquote hot wallets set up where they can only send to or from your cold storage. And then basically you can transfer the ones out of cold storage back to the warm wallet, which you can then send off to your hot wallet. So you have the funds available. So really 
I, I, I'm just saying some of it go back to not just technical, but actually just good policy and, and procedures having in place. I 100% agree. I can actually cannot agree more. You know, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of security does come down to policy, you know, and, you know, part of the you know, part of what you just said also applies to keeping money on the exchange. You know, I've, um, you know, I, I know of companies and, you know, I, I've, um, you know, know of people that will keep a majority of their funds in custody on an exchange, when in reality, you and I both know that that's, that's not your wallet. That's, you know, essentially a shared wallet. Um, but to your point, yes, I 100% agree. You know, if you're having funds that, you know, is more from a macro perspective, macro book, 100% I agree with you, you know, leave it in a cold. And then you leave some funds that you need to be able to immediately spend, you know, should the need arise. So I 100% agree with, um, you know, the setup you just described. Yeah, and I, I think, you, you know, you're, you're completely valid in that cold storage is such a great way to go. But to your point, you, you really can't speed it up. There's only a certain speed you can go at, right? Because you can't take any you know, missteps, you've got to make sure that that machine you're using has never been exposed. The internet is properly air gapped, you know, depending on, on how much money you're talking. I mean, some of the stuff you, you might want to have in Faraday cages, make sure, you know, depending on, you know, how big we get with the funds, you got to be very, very careful in those, those places. And, and to your point, you can't speed that up really. Anything you do to speed up uh, really eliminates the security. So it is sometimes just about thinking of the flow and, and how can you keep the most funds at any time in the most secure area and then get those funds that you, you actually need available but with less exposure. So yeah. awesome. It, Love it. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of, you know, dives down to that information security of, you know, you know, least, least, least privilege. So in this case, you know, you leave the most amounts of funds on the, you know, the, the, the system which has the most potential for compromise. So I think security is a big uh, conversation piece of blockchain technology since it's emerged. But what are some of the most underplayed and un unaddressed security vulnerabilities with blockchain? Yeah, and I think this kind of touches on, you know, my earlier point, you know, this really comes down to, you know, uh, poor cyber hygiene, you know, um, you know, if you're using and again, we, we can kind of dive into, you know, whether it's an enterprise level solution, or whether it's, you know, using a gray mass wallet or using a ledger, you know, but, you know, things like a keylogger, um, you know, th those are those are you can still access people's crypto assets via a keylogger, you know, for example, if I'm using, you know, and again, I'll go down to a retail customer, if I'm using, say, um, you know, a Coinbase, and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say that Coinbase has any vulnerabilities, but let's say you have a Coinbase account, and you did not enable two-factor authentication, um, or you're using SMS or, or you know, another type of two-factor authentication, which is, you know, not, in my opinion, not really, you know, suitable for two-factor. So let's say either no two-factor or using SMS. If I have a key logger installed on somebody's machine, I grab their Coinbase password, and I can now log into their account and send funds. I didn't do a sophisticated hack, but I was able to access their digital assets. So I think, you know, cyber hygiene is incredibly important. It's using MFA, not using an SMS, you know, using a YubiKey, you know, if, if the exchange or the wallet supports, um, you know, those types of MFAs um, or, you know, using Google Authenticator or, you know, whatever type of seed type, um, you know, two-factor authentications. You know, again, then going back to that example I gave earlier, you know, of a man in the middle of attack, you know, if I'm, my entire wallet could be secure, but if I'm copying and pasting somebody's Bitcoin address and there's a malware sitting on my PC that just changes the paste on my, um, on my uh, you know, clipboard, I'm now sending a transaction to somebody that I did not intend to. And as you and I all know, the, the, these transactions are immutable. So it's gone. You can't recall. It's not a wire that I can call the bank and you know, have it pull back. It's gone. So I think a lot of this comes down to, um, like I said, you know, cyber hygiene. It's funny that no matter what the conversation in cybersecurity, it seems to come back to cyber hygiene all the time. And even the basics, right? Even some of the basics, like you said, these aren't the most sophisticated attacks in the world, but they seem to still be able to be effective with blockchain technology. But with blockchain, it just begs the question in my mind, right? I mean, can you have both security and convenience at the same time? Or really, do you have to, one has to give, do you have to give up one? I think, you know, as, as Tom alluded to earlier, I think it's kind of a sliding scale. You know, I think, you know, I don't think you're going to get any security expert in the room to say an air gap computer is not more secure than a computer sitting on the internet. And I think, you know, it's, it's really taking that risk-based approach of, you know, as Tom alluded to earlier, you know, what assets do I as an institution or as a company need to have immediate access to, you know, whether I'm doing an OTC trade and then, you know, I, I can't have, you know, guys that are running back and forth into a Faraday cage to do, um, you know, a transfer via a cold wallet, et cetera. Um, you know, but if, like you having, if you're having a macro book and, you know, you're not touching these funds for days or, or even months, you know, I would advocate for, you know, leaving those on, you know, these, these cold solutions. Um, yeah, I think, uh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to jump no, in. No, no, go ahead. 
I said another thing I, I think you hit on that uh, I was going to jump a little bit earlier. We gave an example of like an exchange and I don't want to pick on any of them, you know, but like the, we have these large exchanges that are coming up and we're trusting them for everything, like you said. So they're going to they're going to make it so uh, I'm going to have my my log in there. I'm going to do my my buying, my selling. They're going to store my assets. I, I do think that you had mentioned like, you know, segregation. I think you have to think that way and segregating different things like maybe using, you know, multiple exchanges have to have, have different um, areas, you know, Obviously, I'm a wallet company, so I would I would say use a wallet or know how to create your own wallet or know how to secure it, like you said, offline. Um, good practices, making sure you're using 2FA. Use things like multi-signature out there. You know, do like look at all the all the things that are out there, like you would anywhere else. Like I wouldn't take a hundred million dollars and put it in one you know bank in a checking account or a savings account, right? I, I would look for multiple areas. I'd spread that out, spread the assets, and I think um, you know that's one of the areas that we really have to look at because it's just basic hygiene that we have in other areas it sometimes doesn't get applied here because the most convenient is an exchange that does it all for you. But again, at the end of the day, you got to look at it and we've seen, you know, examples of Mount Cox and others um, Our Quadrigo recently disappearing. Right. I mean, just, I think it's just that, you know, people uh, need to kind of be learning best pop, pop, best practices, how to segregate and, and how to really think about um, spreading the risk. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, and, and getting back to, you know, the, the exchange point, um, you know, again, th this is this is a race to provide the best service to, to you know, institutional clients. And in doing so, they may inadvertently open up a vulnerability, you know, um, you know, where all the exchanges have uh, you know, API access into the exchanges to effectuate a trade. Um, you know, it could be as simple as going back to poor cyber hygiene, you know, an institution activates an API, accidentally gives it withdrawal rights without realizing it. And that API key is compromised. Um, you know, or it could be a vulnerability in a new release for an API for an exchange that they're not aware of. So, you know, to your point, I agree, you know, this, the, the asset should be spread, whether it's amongst enterprise wallets, whether, you know, you're keeping custody on an exchange or, you know, you're keeping on your own cold wallets. So, I mean, people are securing their Twitter accounts with, with MFA. I mean, you know, if you got a hundred million in account, I'm sure like, you know, you figure you, you probably want to use that. Um, well, well, I mean, you know, just to go back on MFA, you know, I, um, you know, listen, I, I pre my previous experience, you know, I was a, a founder of a telecommunications company and, you know, I, I know, unfortunately, how easy it is to steal someone's phone number and that how very little controls there are on the carrier side. And again, it's, it's meant from a consumer protection. So that way you can port your numbers over to different uh, carriers. Um, but it's very easy to steal someone's phone numbers. In fact, um, you know, I, I know probably about between five or 10 people in the crypto world where their phone numbers were taken. Gmail passwords were reset, and then they're trying to then log into Coinbase, etc., and all of the other you know retail um, you know exchanges. So you know even if you have MFA, I would again advocate for everybody listening that you know you do not use SMS. I do not use SMS for any of my MFAs. I could not support David more on this. I, I worked at a telco company as well, Newstar. We actually ran the porting for a while of phones, and I will tell you, it's very easy to steal phones. You can walk into pretty much any any Sprint, any AT and T, any store, and pretty much talk your way into someone getting your a phone ported to you. Do not use SMS as a two factor. I is not trusted. Multiple examples of that happening. Google Authenticators, uh, you know, free. There's other ones out there. They're free. I, I highly recommend YubiKeys um, if you can look into them. But agree with you a thousand million billion percent, David. It's uh, do not use SMS. Sorry, to, sorry to jump in there, but I, I love that you're telco as well, and totally understand uh, the flaws there. Yep. Hey, hey guys, so real quick, uh, you know, you know, David, Tom, I'm curious to get your talk, your thoughts on kind of the what's the regulatory or the compliance environment, you know, over the horizon in this space. So, my my opinion, listen, I, I've and I guess I probably have to be careful what I say here, but I've, I've worked with the regulators, you know, in, in the past and, you know, many of the companies that I've been at and, you know, with, with all due respect to any of them, if they're listening, I, I think they're at a, an, an incredible disadvantage, especially in this space. I think that, you know, this is way over many of their heads, you know, any of the regulators that I've spoken to in this space, you know, in, in essence, even when we're in discussions with them about, um, you know, um, you know, whether we're in compliance from a DFS perspective, et cetera, I feel in many cases I'm, I'm teaching them on how to audit us or, you know, how to view us. So I think that although I think we're definitely in the right direction, I think that there's an incredible knowledge gap in, in this particular field in general and especially in the regulatory field. You know, it's, it's very, you know, what I refer to, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but they're, they're very, they're checklist oriented. 
do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have a firewall? Do you have antivirus? Do you have endpoint protection? And they don't necessarily look at holistically as to what they're trying to accomplish via these regulations. And I think that, you know, they're, they're looking at, you know, 15, 20 year old type of methodologies when they're looking at this. So I think that they have the right intentions, but I think that, you know, we're, we're definitely playing catch up. I, I'll jump in there with David. I think he's right. And I think that we're seeing a lot of state regulators kind of come in, which is not uncommon. Um, and you see on the uh, cybersecurity bills and stuff like that, right? California is one of the ones that go first and privacy and, and stuff like that. And you'll see that. So we're seeing uh, like New York and, and Sioux Falls kind of getting some trust regulators that people seem to be going through. Um, I, I also think regulators aren't sure who handles what. Uh, they, you know, getting better about it, but like what exactly does the CFTC versus the SEC handle? They're, they're starting to state it. Um, and what I mean by handle is, you know, is it a commodity? Is it is it um, is it retail? Is it is it a payment? They're, they're just trying to try to first define what everything is. So it's, it's very difficult for the regulators. You're taking something that is um, very disruptive. Most of the electronic technology that we're going to is saying, let's take the paper-based pro um, process that we used to have and make it faster. Crypto is, let's make it so it's completely decentralized, happens instantly, and now let's add controls to regulate it. So they have a complete reverse approach that they have to look at. I do think that some of the fundamentals of the original marketing do work, and some of the stuff that Dave and I talked about, right, requiring segmentation of the market, just making sure that um, even if a, if somebody wants to do all-in-one, that they're, they're their buyer sellers, their custody, the way they do the exchanges all separate will be will be good. And I think that they're looking at that, just controls in place. But again, it, it, it's a it's a difficult one, uh, you know, to David's point, understanding it all, um, understanding each coin, each um, use case, uh, and and then again, you know, going more from a digital uh, and and trying to I'd say almost slow it down to make it more secure instead of the paper-based, um, very historic ancient that we're just speeding up. It's a very different uh, thing. And correct me if I'm wrong, David, this is my uh, uh, belief from working with uh, my one year experience in crypto, which <laughs> I guess, is, guess is a lifetime for, 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 for this emerging market. No, I a hundred percent agree with everything you said. And, and, you know, not, not to digress too much, but I think, you know, it also begs the question that once you start adding all of these regulatory controls and oversight, you know, it, it kind of moves away from the original intention of, of Bitcoin or, you know, Satoshi's vision. So I think that, that, you know, again, that this is more of a security conversation, but I think it's, it's, it's an interesting topic at some point to discuss, you know, that, you know, once you start adding in all these controls, you know, you're going to start increasing the cost of the transactions and it's going to slow things down. You're going to have more oversight. And then it, it, it's in some way removes some of the, you know, benefits of the original vision of this. Agreed. It is, a, it is an interesting conflict, right? you got these uh, decentralized models that uh, uh, basically we're trying to make it so that it can, it can expand, but expansion does require uh, checks and balances and, and security. Very much similar to the analogy we said, cold wallets versus hot wallets <laughs> or, you know, uh, no wallet, right? Cold wallet is, takes a long time, very secure. You feel very confident. It's offline, doesn't touch the internet. And then we'll just go away from even hot wallets. It's just, just regular right to the blockchain, you know, um, you know, extremely fast and efficient, but not secure uh, from what we're seeing. Yep. Hey guys, we got to take a, a, a commercial break right here. So if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. That's right, folks. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I'll remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to take a pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the founding director of the cybersecurity program at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University, Professor David Schweb. So whatever you do, don't go away, and don't use SMS for MFA either. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem superconnector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founding director of the cybersecurity program at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University, Professor David Schwett. So Dave, let's jump right into it again. How has the security changed over the evolution and adoption of crypto? So, you know, I think this goes back to the, the comment earlier about convenience. You know, I think that, um, you know, as more and more people are jumping into the crypto world, whether it's institutions or retail or um, you know, middle America, if you will. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the the um, apps, for example, on the app store, you know, there's, if you search like hardware wallet, you'll probably see like hundreds of them. And, you know, for the average person, it's really hard to understand how crypto works in general, but in, you know, but also how to tell the difference between the different wallets and, you know, how to secure it. So I think the evolution is that there's probably a lot more onboarding onto the crypto world, uh, less education. And, you know, I think probably, you know, more, uh, you know, uh, avenues for exploitation of vulnerabilities, because, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, you know, new wallets that are popping up, you know, are, are definitely not tested and, and probably not secured. So what do you think some of the challenges that you faced protecting the, the API keys for their exchange connectivity are? 
So, you know, this is, this was probably, you know, when I was the, the CISO for Galaxy, I think this is probably one of my, my biggest challenges, you know, is, you know, we're, we're building, you know, whether it's an EMS or an OMS system, you know, that's going to be connected to all these different exchanges. And, you know, we're, we're not going to, you know, have our operations, you know, log into each exchange separately and, you know, effectuate a trade, you know, via the GUI, you know, we're going to be building or whether we're going to be integrating, you know, with different, you know, services, you know, for an OMS or EMS or PMS perspective. So we have to utilize the API keys. And, you know, as you and I both know, you know, the API keys is what's, what's essentially signing the transaction to, to tell the exchange to actually go ahead and, you know, um, you know, permit this trade or this transfer or this withdrawal. So I think, you know, it's, these keys are as important as anything else. You know, if you can have, you know, 2FA or MFA, you know, into the front end, these API keys, you know, you're not going to have, you can't have MFA with an API key. So you have to ensure that this one API key is as secure as, as, as you can possibly make it because if, if you lose that API key or someone is able to you know, get that API key, they have full access to you know, whatever funds you have that you've given access to from that API key. So you know, for me, it's you know, ensuring that that key is you know, encrypted at rest, encrypted in transit, you know, if, if you're sending it back and forth. Um, you know, and then, you know, ensuring that, you know, whenever it's decrypted to sign a transaction, it's done with, you know, if possible, not, you know, anybody having physical access to the machine that is going to be, um, that's, that's hosting that API key, <clears throat> you know, getting into, like I was alluding to earlier with the, um, you know, with the ritual rights for, you know, you know, uh, you know, in this case, you know, I would, you know, advocate for, you know, maybe PGP for signing that API key. <clears throat> so that way, you know, you can have the, um, you know, the, the, the decryption key maybe stored also on a machine. So I, I think it's, I think we're not there yet, you know, with, um, you know, as far as, you know, how you can truly secure this, you know, you can put up a million different roadblocks and you can put up a million different detective controls in place to see if there's anybody that's, you know, doing any sort of anomalies on that machine on the host side or on the network side. Um, you know, and for me, you know, I'm, I'm paranoid. So for me, it's, you know, everything is, you know, isolated, you know, ports blocked, you know, for me, it was, you can't even get to the machine. Um, you know, we blocked all ports open uh, off. So if you, you know, once the machine is, is live, that's signing these transactions, you know, for example, a good security practice would be, you know, cut off all port access, you know, even SSH. If someone needs to get into that box, there needs to be some sort of process in which they have to make a request. Port 22 needs to be opened up. Um, you know, then somebody else has to approve, you know, giving them that, you know, that key so they can an SSH in. So I think it's, it's putting up a, a whole bunch of different roadblocks. So that way, you know, there isn't just one oops moment where that API key or the access to that box can be, um, you know, given to somebody. I couldn't agree with you more, David. I mean, like everything we're describing, you're coming down to basically, uh, in most cases, a single token that you have to protect. So we have all this great stuff and they all comes down to a single token. And, and I do agree. I don't think that the solutions are great out there. I do know there are some HSM uh, companies and, and, and individuals who, who work with HSMs who are looking at... Um, different ways to hopefully speed it up. Into, it's basically what you're describing, right? Some, something that is uh, tamper resistant, uh, you, you can't get to, uh, you know, uh, but like George, we should seriously at some point think about having like a HSM uh, conversation here, a hardware security module. Cause funny thing about like HSMs, you're, you're getting back to like firmware, um, you're getting back to offline storage, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about is almost, it's crypto is almost pushing us backwards. Um, it, it's great. It's decentralized, but to protect it, the things we're talking about are actually like actual, like, uh, hard, you know, hard coding, uh, firmware type, uh, solutions. Uh, we're talking about offline storage. We're talking about that. It would be really interesting. And, and I'd love to get your thoughts as we, as we go, David, but a lot yeah. of the solutions and things you are looking at, the solution is actually to kind of go offline. And so we're, we're talking about this great groundbreaking technology that is really changing everything. And then the way to secure it is to take most of it offline or go back to like, you know, um, the hardware kind of engineering type people who can uh, secure these devices. So let's start to go down that road a little bit and, and talk about that. And I'm, I'm definitely want to get to the HSM stuff. Um, Dave, can, can you explain for our listening audience in, in the simplest terms possible, how, how the differences between uh, how Bitcoin effectuates multi-signature versus how ERC-20 does it with smart contracts? Sure. So yeah, at a very simplistic level, you know, the Bitcoin, you know, protocol will allow for multi-signature. So what that means is, you know, if you have an asset that's on the, on the blockchain, and like I said, you know, I wanted to send you, I signed it with my private key. 
you can build into to the blockchain, well, not you can, it's built into the blockchain protocol that you can utilize multi-signature so that way you need, say, two keys, you know, two or three keys to sign a transaction before it's sent to you. So that's, that's innate and that's built into the protocol. What ERC-20, ERC-20, and which is, you know, essentially, a, you know, Ethereum or, you know, all the tokens that sit on the Ethereum blockchain, they, they don't, it's not built into the protocol. So the way it's effectuated is you, you're essentially building this smart contract and the smart contract will say, don't send funds unless two or three, you know, two of three or three of four, um, you know, or three of five signatures um, or keys, you know, sign this transaction. So, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I didn't say anything. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. So, you know, for, for me that, you know, although to the end user, it appears to be the same thing. It's really, it's two different things because, you know, you're having, you're relying on essentially programming language on the ERC 20 side for a smart contract to say, you know, there's a requirement. So, you know, you could get into, um, you know, faulty programming, if you will, on the smart contract side, you know, not all wallet vendors will do it the same way. Um, or somebody could do it themselves. Um, or somebody could write a vulnerability in the smart contract. So it appears that you need, you know, two of three, but at a certain point you can trigger it to say, you know, after X amount of trades don't require, you know, the two keys. So unless you're actually diving into the smart contract code itself, you know, there's somewhat of a reliance on the hardware, I mean, the wallet provider to, you know, tell you that, yes, you know, we, we built in, you know, N of M, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, signatures. I couldn't agree with you more on the, on the smart contracts. And I think um, it's important if you look at a wallet to make sure that they have some kind of, auditing firm that stands by it. I mean, cause, cause to your point, there's no real standard and you got to make sure <clears throat> someone's reviewing the work that was done. I also think that there are some pretty, pretty awesome smart contracts coming out with like mathematical proofs, uh, making it much harder to make mistakes. Um, I don't have any specific ones. I think it's still kind of being developed, but at some point if I get there, I think it'd be good. Um, I completely agree with you, David. It's, it's difficult on the ERC 20, uh, path cause you are, you're relying on these smart contracts that are, are pretty much developed by each person individually. Whereas, you know, with uh, Bitcoin, multi-sig is just, it, it, it's, it's for everybody, it's, it's, it's in there, it's written in there. So totally agree with that. What are your thoughts on sharding versus MPC? Um, so I, I think, you know, for me, I, I, I prefer, you know, MPC, multi-party, you know, computation, um, you know, but, you know, just to kind of give an overview for the listeners, you know, sharding is, is essentially taking that one key and breaking it up into, say, three or four or five, you know, different pieces. And, you know, what this does is, you know, it gives you the ability to, store the keys in, in different locations. So that way there's somewhat of an assurance that while this key is stored at rest, it's not stored in one place. So you could have a piece of the key, you know, again, maybe you want to go the SAS model. You can have a piece of the key on Azure and you can have a piece of the key on AWS and you can have a piece of the key on Google. So that way from a physical security perspective, you know, someone would need to break into three different cloud vendors in order to get the key. The downside of sharding though is those keys need to be reassembled at some point in order to sign a transaction. So Although the time in which, you know, there, there's the exploitation of a vulnerability to grab the key in theory is reduced because you're not storing it together, it does have to be reassembled at, at a certain point. With, with MPC, and I'm definitely going to have to dive into it because this is way over my head and you need like, you know, Princeton level, you know, crypto guys to talk about this. But, you know, the, 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 the benefits of like, so like MPC is, you know, what they call like zero knowledge proof in the sense that you can sign a transaction without ever having to reassemble a key. And again, there's a whole mathematical, um, you know, proof behind it is over my head, but you know, it, it, I, I was, it was explained to me and I walked through and I've done my own reading on it and it definitely makes sense from a mathematical perspective, but essentially what you're doing is you're able to send the transaction to multiple parties and have them all essentially sign it individually and then it's sent back. So the key is never at any point reassembled. So you never have that moment in time in which you can either grab that key in them or you can grab that key, you know, on that host when it's getting reassembled. I, yeah, I agree with you, David. I think that right now the Shamir secret, you know, sharing the sharding is really the industry standard. It's here because it's simple. It's easy to reason with. Um, you know, George, we should get Dan Bonet on here. He's a, a PhD in cryptography out of Stanford. He, anybody who's in blockchain is listening will know him. Um, he is really leading some multi-party computation solutions. So he's doing the MPC stuff. I think there's some great stuff coming out. But to your point, David, I think the hard part about it is it's just not quite here yet. We all have to kind of watch for it. And the nice thing about um, sharding is it, it, it has a stat. It's been here for a very long time. We understand it. Uh, people can do it. But I, I do agree. MPC at some point should uh, hopefully replace. You know, it's just going to be a better standard as we get uh, perfected. Yeah, so I'm looking to put together some panels, about 12 of them, 
and, and 12 different domains in cybersecurity, some expert panels to come on and appear on the third segment of the show uh, on a regular basis, which uh, I think would be really cool. Um, so as we look to look to the future here in terms of video and how we're going to structure the show and what we're going to do and bringing this to the next level. So yeah, let's definitely, let's, let's go give him a call and bring him on and um, see if we can't get him to uh, maybe do one of our Do you parents. remember him? Day, uh, he, he was the one who helped us back in the Secret Service uh, days. He was uh, one of our original uh, founding task force members in the uh, uh, San Francisco Bay Area one. I he absolutely remember Yeah, yeah, he's just I absolutely he's a phenomenal remember. guy. He's the right person in crypto, yeah. Yeah. So Dave, I, I want to hear your thoughts on some traditional issues that have been going on in, in, in the cloud versus on-prem versus the hybrid solution discussion that everybody seems to be having and sort of struggling with. Everybody's got a different opinion and people are moving at different speeds, right? So what are your thoughts on the security challenges of all these three models? What do you think? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's funny. So I guess I've been in the industry long enough where I, it's, it's cyclical. You know, when I first started, everything was, you know, insourcing. You know, we're going to bring everything in-house because we can do it better and, you know, we're not going to outsource anything. And now it, it's kind of reverse. You know, everything, if it's a SaaS, throw it on the SaaS, you know, or throw it in the cloud. You know, and, you know, for me, personally, I think that, you know, I, I would be doing myself a disservice in most companies that I've worked for, um, you know, again, unless you were a Goldman or a city and you have the funds to throw in to build the same types of, of uh, security that say an Amazon does, you know, you're, you're, you, you'd be ill-advised to not trust the cloud in certain respects. And I'm not saying to fully trust it. I'm saying, you know, obviously, you know, use your own encryption, um, you know, if you can, um, you, know, and, you know, from a budgetary perspective, you know, do direct connects into the cloud. So that way, you know, you're controlling, you know, the, the transmission of the data so you can ensure it's using your encryption. And then you can use whole disk encryption, you know, on the servers itself. So I think that the for me personally, I think it's it's definitely a hybrid model. Um, you know, in certain cases, you know, in this case, like for example, if we're going back to that API model, you know, if I'm leveraging, say, a cloud infrastructure, and I want to, you know, secure my API keys, I may keep that on-prem. Um, so that way, you know, it's it's under my physical security and it's under, completely under our, um, you know, uh, you know, security from a. Uh, you know, from an encryption standpoint, you know, but the, the rest of the infrastructure that's signing the transactions and it's interfacing with the exchanges, I may, you know, keep, keep in the cloud. So I, I think the true solution is, is definitely hybrid. Um, so that, that's kind of my, you know, 20,000 foot level of view of this. So I was reading an article in the, in the Crypto Crimson and it's, it's dated April 8th. It's CryptoCrimson.com. It's by Jose Lanz. And it says that EOS continues to generate controversies in the crypto verse, right? And then he goes on to say that this blockchain is part of a small group of projects, which is, which is either loved or hated, but which leave no one indifferent. And it's, you know, you basically, you're not, no one sits on the fence on this issue. So one of the, one of those who recently criticized the project was Joseph Lubin, and he's the co-founder of Ethereum and the creator of Consensus. And in his speech during Deconomy, Lubin explained that EOS has a series of flaws that go against the philosophy of crypto in general. He explained that this blockchain is highly centralized and the validators have in their hands the possibility to censor the operations they want. He said this, and I quote, he said, how about EOS? As has been debated endlessly, a platform controlled by 21 crypto bros is just not all that decentralized. They can collude and censor if they wish, Governments and other well-resourced actors can bribe them or force them to act against their will and against the well-being and the security of the people using the platform. Dave, what say you? I, I, I agree. I agree with, with everything Joe said. You know, you know, for, for, the, for the listeners who may be not familiar with EOS, you know, EOS is, is kind of this mix. It's, you know, it's a, in theory, a decentralized platform, but it's governed you know, by these, by these, you know, 21 companies. And, and the way it works is, you know, the, the people with the EOS are voting in, you know, the, these 21, you know, companies that are essentially running the, the chain. So it's not decentralized in the sense that, you know, like you can throw up a node like you can, <coughs> excuse me, like in blockchain or Ethereum, you know, it's the infrastructure is, <coughs> in, you know, arguably institutional infrastructure. Um, <coughs> because it's run by these companies, but they're voted in by the holder of the EOS tokens. So it's kind of this incestuous relationship that, you know, those who hold the most are going to vote in their friends who then potentially have their self-interest, um, you know, aligned with theirs. So I think that it, it on, on paper, it sounds great because you have these, you know, the people of the tokens voting in just like the government, you know, you're voting in the people that are going to govern you, you know, but again, it's the people with the most EOS 
have you know are going to vote in you know their bros if you will as 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 he you know said in the article so i think you know arguably all like a white paper it sounds great but i think in practice i, I don't i i wouldn't personally i'm i'm not someone that believes that eos is, is going to stay you know there may be some best practices that were taken from it from a you know they you know put out this constitution and you know they have certain rules and there's voting rights on you know maybe you know you're not going to have you know these um you know these uh you know you know, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold, and every time it forks, um, you know, you have with EOS because you have this constitution, you have people that vote, and in theory, you know, pe more people have say. But uh, but I agree. You know, if you have it centralized in twenty one, you know, different people or twenty one different companies, you know, I, I I agree. I think the government or anybody can kind of come in, and you know, <clears throat> you're having a target on your back. You know, here are the twenty one companies that you can you know break into or or influence in order to you know you know do what you will with with this chain. All right, Dave, hang with us for a few minutes. We've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the founding director of the cybersecurity program at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University, Professor David Schweb. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founding director of the cybersecurity program at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University, Professor David Schwed. So, Dave, you know, this is a, the topic of a lot of discussion, uh, especially lately with all the, the articles coming out uh, about people losing money. Are, are public blockchains a secure means of storing trillions of dollars of value? I mean, would you trust $100 million with this technology? Uh, that's a loaded question, but my, my answer is <laughs> yes, if, if done properly. I, I, I absolutely. You know, I, I think that, you know, there, there's, there's, there's transparency in the blockchain. There's transparency in the protocols. There's transparency in the encryption types. And I think that what needs to happen is I think you need to have the herding, like, and there needs to be, you know, um, you know, just like there was, you know, again, I'm going to go back to my telecom roots, you know, after the Telecom Act of 96, you saw all of these CLECs pop up. And what ended up happening was, you know, 90% of them went bankrupt and went out of business. And then you had the leaders emerge. And I think that's what needs to happen here. I think there needs to be at the enterprise level, you know, maybe, you know, two or three or four different, you know, types of, you know, wallet solutions or custody, et cetera. And I think that once that happens and the regulations in place, absolutely. But at, at its core, yes, I think that the public blockchains are a secure means of, of storing it with the proviso of, you know, if done properly. And I think, you know, David, I think you bring up a good point too. That, that again, we've talked about not to be a dead horse, but the segregation and making sure there's multiple people in there. And I also think there's, you know, policies and then also just legitimacy as in insurance as well. I know like you don't want to rely on insurance, but you know, we are seeing more and more company, obviously we did it at BitGo, Coinbase is doing it and, you know, getting a hundred million plus in insurance that is very clear and transparent coming out like the Lloyd syndicates, the larger ones that says, you know, if there's an issue, at least people are made whole on it. And I think that kind of stuff, it's similar to the industry with safety deposit, you know, I'm sorry, um, with, with the federal uh, deposit insurance, you know, $250,000 per account, people start to trust it. You know, if you go over 250, you could lose it. Not that you would, but I think those kind of things are just going to keep us going in the right direction, George. It's going to get better and better. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at, you know, there's probably not one major financial institution that hasn't been in the news for some sort of data breach. But I think, you know, to bring up your point, you're right. I think that people feel that even if there is a breach, their money's still protected from an insurance perspective, from a regulatory and from a governmental perspective. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's the same thing here. I think that as long as you have, you know, qualified custodians and you have, you know, the, the funds are insured and it's regulated and there is government oversight, I, I, I think that, you know, you'll, you'll see, you know, onboarding of, of the institutions. So then what's preventing institutional investors from adding cryptocurrencies to their portfolios today? You know, I, I think uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily maybe want to be the first. So they're kind of, you know, waiting to see who else jumps into it. And I think a big piece of it is also the, the, the custodial piece, the qualified. Isn't that with everything? Nobody ever wants to be the first like that. Right. <laughs> I just, well, you know, what? I, I think, you know I, I do know that they're all, you know, all the major banks are either, you know, you know, developing their own solution from a custodial standpoint, and they all have teams of people. Um, you know, I, I know that they're all looking at this as if it's it's going to happen and they're all building infrastructures and building teams and, and you know, hiring people. You know, there's not one major financial institution that doesn't have a, quote, head of digital assets or head of crypto. So they're all building it as if it's going to happen. I think they know it is. I think they're just kind of sitting by and, and potentially waiting. Um, you know, but I, I think that, I, I think when, when, once the, 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 you know, as Tom alluded to, the, the um, you know, the, the insurance piece and then the qualified custodian piece, I think once that shakes out on the regulatory piece, I think you'll see an influx from institutions. I also think um, you and I were at, you know, Chase before, right, George, we've been in, in banks and, and, and stuff. I think uh, obviously banks have more at risk, right? They, they, they can't be fast to move because it's riskier for them, but also the volatility um, can cause huge issues when you think about from a balance perspective. So if I, if I, you know, suddenly get into, Bitcoin and I'm a large financial institution and I, I go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take a risk on about, let's just say 20 billion in Bitcoin. I want to, I want to work with what my customers have and it comes roaring back, which it can do. It, it can have huge gains and losses. And if five X's you suddenly have a hundred billion in, in a risk that they, so for banks, it's a lot of it is like you're, you're, you're constantly looking at your risk modeling and trying to see how much you want to take on. So I think part of it also is the volatility as it kind of comes more into uh it's definitely getting better. And if you trend it, you can look, it's getting better and better. I think as regulations come in, as more people come in space, as more 
more acceptable use cases, more financial institutions come in. But it's a huge risk if you're a large financial institution because overnight, something that you want to kind of have a stake in but not a super large stake in can just explode on you without you realizing it. So while we're, while we're going down this road, I want to talk settlements just for a second. So Dave, you know, in your opinion, can T plus zero cryptocurrency or blockchain settlements be as secure as T plus one or greater? Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, my, my answer is kind of forks off into two different prongs. You know, can it on paper from a security perspective? Yes, it can. Um, you know, as long as you have the checks and balances in place, you know, from a, um, uh, you know, from, you know, what we talked about from the protection of the private keys to, you know, ensuring that the, the address, you know, I think what the, the, the biggest concern that people have with, with blockchain settlement is the fact that transactions are immutable. So if you send it to somebody and it's wrong, you know, you, you can't claw it back and, you know, it, it's gone forever, if you will. So I think that that's probably the biggest apprehension today, um, you know, you know, or, or what comes into play with, you know, you know, how many days it takes to settle. Um, you know, ideally, you know, if you, you know, did a T plus one or T plus two, you know, you can, you know, validate and ensure all of these transactions are going where they need to go. But that kind of reduces the, the allure of, of, you know, the blockchain that is, you know, instantaneous settlement. Um, but I think you can, I think you can get there. I don't, I don't necessarily feel that today there's that comfort level. Um, you know, that's what's kind of holding back the institutions, but I think we can absolutely get there. Cause again, this is all zeros and ones, you know, this is all programmable and this is all, um, you know, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, able to be encrypted and able to be validated and able to be audited. So I think we can get there. Um, but I think we're, you know, a little bit away from that, that, um, you know, that comfort level. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like through the whole conversation, just like anything else, it all comes down to business process and basic, basic cyber hygiene. And yeah. if you do things the right way, then, it, and then it can be a secure environment and it can be done. Uh, and it can be efficient, right. And very, and provide a lot of value. But if you don't, if you make simple mistakes, any mistake really along the process, then, then you're really vulnerable. That's the kind of you know, Dave, I mean, uh, George, I think Dave makes a good point, right? You can keep, it, things will speed up. They'll get better and better. But think about the, you know, banking world, right? Um, you used to have to go inside, you know, show your ID, get your money out of the safe, they hand you cash. And then, then things like debit cards came. Then, I mean, sorry, uh, ATM cards first, right? And then you could actually go to a machine, get it, you know, with a pen. And, and then ultimately, and it, you get less amounts and there's rules in there. You can pull a certain amount at a certain time. Uh, but things sped up and now we have like mobile online banking, right? You, how often do you even go into your bank? Probably never unless you're, you're probably dealing with something larger like a mortgage. Uh, so I, I think it will happen over time. Things will speed up. But when you're putting the, the, the groundwork in place and making it work um, at first, it's just going to be slower. You got to get the process, the policies down, figure things out. And, you know, at some point we'll probably have a better HSM discussion. That'll probably speed things up actually because it, it will be um, – the ability to, you know, trust some of the machines to do more. I think we will speed up, but at, at this point, I do agree with David. It's like, you know, slow is good right now, um, especially with large funds. So Dave, one final question. We're running really late here, but I want to get it in. Are, are blockchains more uh, a more secure identity solution than current centralized options that are available in the market today? Um, yeah, I don't know if I would say it's more secure, but I, I think it, it, it allows, you know, again, for this whole transparency of the blockchain, I, I think it's, um, it, it gives people more comfort, you know, because if, if you're going to be validating or authenticating somebody and you have this decentralized uh, blockchain that's, you know, all, all, all over the world, if you will, and, you know, there's, you know, the, 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 the data that you're using to authenticate somebody or that, that block that you're using to authenticate somebody is replicated all over the world. I think there's an assurance that th this is the data that it should be. When you, when you have things centralized, you know, again, even if it's an AWS or even if it's an Azure, you know, it's, it's still centralized on under one company's control and, you know, in theory under maybe one type of software's control. So there's a vulnerability, like all the big players have vulnerabilities, you know, Cisco and, you know, Citrix recently. So I, I think that, you know, centralized, while it provides some assurances that, you know, you're under AWS or under Azure or you're under Citrix or you're under Cisco, you know, as far as, you know, one company's security and one company's processes, I think that as people get more comfortable with the thought of, you know, storing authentication data 
you know, on this decentralized blockchain. And again, with, with the proper controls that we've talked about before, I think in some ways it, it adds that transparency, which in some ways makes it more secure because you'll see if there's anybody that's trying to, um, you know, change. I mean, you can't, and you know, you know, you, you can't change, you know, pre-existing blocks. It's on the blockchain already. So once it's on there and it's, you know, you, you move forward with the blockchain, it's now in there forever and it's, it's in perpetuity and you can always reference back that block. So, you know, I, I, now that I'm actually walking through this, you know, I, I definitely think it's, it's more secure. Hey, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. This, is, this has been fantastic. I'd love to have you back as one of our panel members on blockchain, if, if you're willing. And, and uh, you know, Yeah, I'd love to. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Um, you know, look, I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate you coming on. Um, this is a great discussion, Tom. I mean, you know, this is, a, this is good stuff. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to make those calls and uh, see if we can't get this panel going sooner rather than later. This is one, one of my favorite episodes. Uh, David, absolutely love having you. Yeah, thanks, George. This is awesome. Yeah, good, good, good. Very good, folks. So we gotta, we got to run. So before I go, I want to remind our listeners, to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 